we are in fellowship with the Lord. We do that by confession of sins. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that means that all we have to do to confess sins is simply to admit or acknowledge our sins to God. It is not uh, an exercise in penance. It is not an exercise in feeling sorry for your sins. You may or may not, but a lot of people think that that's what you have to do in order to somehow impress God so that He will forgive you. But it doesn't say that. That's not what the words mean. And the words in Scripture are very, very important. God the Holy Spirit chose them specifically and worked through the writers of Scripture to communicate precisely what he means. And there are clearly words in the Greek language that he could have chosen. He wanted to communicate the idea of some kind of emotional response because of the sin that we've committed, but that's not what he did. He chose words that mean simply to admit, to acknowledge your sins, and God forgives us. Why? Because Jesus did all the work at the cross. We don't add to it by our feelings. We don't add to his completed work by what we think about what we have done. What matters is what Christ did, not what we think. So the issue is simply that. Admit your sins. You're instantly forgiven, restored to fellowship. You need to forget it and move on. That's the rest of it. Isolate that sin, forget it, and move on. You go back to think about it, dredge it up, feel guilty over it, all that is sin. You're right back out of fellowship again, and you've got to confess your sins again. So we confess our sins, we instantly regain the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we can move forward in the spiritual life. So let's bow our heads. We'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then we will pray. Father, we do thank you for the fact that you have given us your word that over a period of 2,000 years you worked through a variety of human beings, apostles, prophets, lawgivers, in order to reveal through them your precise will for the human race. And Father, this is a gracious act. We did nothing to earn or deserve it. You did it from your own benevolence, motivated by your love, in order to tell us everything we need to know that we might have life and grow, and a spiritual life and grow to maturity. So, Father, now as we look into your word, the perfect word of life, we ask that you would guide and direct our thoughts, that the Holy Spirit would make all of these things clear to us, that we might apply them, store them in our souls, apply them in our lives, that you might be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this evening to 2 Timothy 3.16. We'll start there. We're in our study of the uh, the epistle of James. And we're studying adversity and stress and God's solutions. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Stress in the soul is the result of your volition. You have nothing to do with adversity. We all run into all categories of adversity at various times throughout our lives. Sometimes it seems like we just wade in adversity from day to day. But we know from scriptures that all adversity in our lives, all tests are opportunities for us to uh, uh, apply God's Word. The trouble is today we seem to run into a society that has all sorts of very attractive solutions to problems. That if you have this problem or that problem in your life, because we think they're relatively new problems in human history, that um, uh, antiquated solutions like the Bible or antiquated books like the Bible just couldn't provide solutions to these new, new problems. So in our arrogance, we think somehow we've come up with something new. And we need to look at what the Bible says. And we started this last week. We were looking at the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Sufficiency means that it is all that it needs to be. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God doesn't mean inspired. We use the word inspired in a lot of different ways and with a lot of different uh, 
connotations than what this means. We talk about the fact that uh, Mozart, as a genius, when he sat down to compose one of his sonatas or an opera, that he was inspired. We may talk about, we may look at a picture painted by a, a Rembrandt or Renoir and say that that's inspired. We look at uh, Michelangelo's sculpturing and we say that that's inspired. Or somebody, just in everyday language, somebody all of a sudden has a flash of insight and comes up with a great idea and we say, how inspired that was. Well, none of that has to do with the biblical meaning of this passage. The Greek word here is theopneustos, which is a compound word in the Greek. It's T-H-E-O, which is the word for God, and neustos, keep writing in Greek, P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S, from the word for wind or breath. Pneuma is the word for spirit, uh, breath, uh, and it means God breathed. What that communicates here is that you had the human writer of Scripture. God breathed into his soul that which he wanted man to know. And the human author of Scripture exhaled that as Scripture and wrote it. And God the Holy Spirit so uh, so um, superintended the entire operation that the writer of that he protected the writer of Scripture from communicating any error. Yet he did not violate the writer's own style of writing or personality or any other human factor. He just made sure that what was written was without error. So that it is inerrant and infallible in everything that it speaks about. The subtleties of theology are such that people try to get away with with things. And often you'll hear somebody say, Well, I believe that the Bible is God's Word and authoritative in every area of faith and practice. Well, what's wrong with that statement? A lot of you are saying, well, that's a good statement. Yeah, well, what about science? What about history? What about art? What about every other category that it t- touches on besides faith and practice? Isn't it infallible and inerrant in every, every area? Of course it is. But that's the way the liberals get around. It's not what is said more often than not. It's what is not said. You always have to look for what's, what's left out. So 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. And is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training or instruction in righteousness. That the man of God, that is the believer, may be adequate, fully equipped for every good work. Now that's a pretty comprehensive statement. You have two things that make it comprehensive. Wait a minute. Having a little tape problem here. Now I'm blind, looking into the light. Um, All Scripture, not some Scripture, not the New Testament. In fact, when the Apostle Paul wrote this, what he had in mind was primarily Old Testament Scripture because much of the New Testament had yet to be written. Of course, it includes the New Testament, but he had in mind, by interpretation, uh, mostly the Old Testament. All Scripture is inspired by God and that the believer will be equipped for every good work. These are very, very comprehensive terms. Now, turn with me to Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. John, it's cool enough this evening. That thing's blowing my Bible so much. Why don't you turn the fan down a little bit, please? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Oh, now it's clicking. I guess there's no happy medium, is there? You can cut it off. If I get hot, I'll tell you to turn it back on. 
seeing that his divine power has granted to us, and there we see that comprehensive term again, everything. Everything. Not most things, not some things, not everything we can think of in this century, but not everything that will be thought of in the 20th century. It says everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, how has he granted this to us? He has granted it to us through. This tells us the means. It's um, Through always indicates means. How has he done it? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And the word here for true knowledge is the Greek word epinosis. Now the word gnosis means knowledge. When you add the prefix epi to it, it increases it. Gnosis is just academic knowledge, but epinosis has the connotation of full knowledge, true knowledge, uh, knowledge which is uh, completely and fully usable. Epinosis refers to that knowledge which the Holy Spirit stores in our souls that we can apply that is uh, valuable for spiritual growth. Uh, He has granted us everything through knowledge. So everything starts with knowledge. At one time or another in your life, you're going to talk to somebody and they're going to say, I don't know why you go to church and you sit there for an hour or more and you listen to somebody teach and you take notes and you do all this. You need to go to church and just experience God. You need to just go to church and just just feel like you're close to God. And, and what they're doing is they're using their emotion and their subjective impressions as the criterion for evaluating their relationship with God. And now it becomes something that's very fluid and very subjective because you can wake up in the morning and you can not feel well for any number of reasons and come to church and you're just barely hanging in there and yet you have worshipped God because you have done what God wants you to do. That's what worship means, is to attribute value to God. And nothing is more valuable than to take our time to learn exactly what God has for us. To gain that knowledge, we cannot apply anything unless we first know it. You can't apply what you don't know. You just can't do it. And you can't know what you haven't taken the time and the energy to learn. You have to concentrate. You have to focus. You have to be consistent. You have to do it week after week after week because learning is a gradual process. It's not fast. Everything in our society is very fast, but learning any subject takes time. So growth in the spiritual life comes only one way, and that's through epinosis, knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, that is, his character, his glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become by them, that is, by those promises, not something else, but by those promises you might become become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped what? Corruption. How do you escape corruption? We're all born corrupted. Three strikes against us. Strike one is... We are guilty of Adam's original sin because he was our federal head, our representative in the garden, and when he, when he fell, we fell. Sin number two is we all possess a sin nature. Strike number three is we have all committed personal sins. Another category is we live in the cosmic system. We live in the devil's world. And so everything around us is corrupted by that and corrupted by sin. And so we are all victims. We live in an era today when victimhood has been taken to new levels. And everybody wants to cry and whine about they were a victim of somebody's abuse. Somebody didn't treat them the way they think they should have been treated. And in many cases, they're valid. If you you have gone through some level of of severe abuse, whether it's uh, verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, childhood abuse, whatever it might be, I don't mean to ridicule that or to diminish that. What I am saying is we've all gone through certain kinds of abuse because we're living in Satan's world. It's not a difference in kind. It's a difference in degree. 
It's a difference in degree. And that means that the solution is the same for everybody. Just because you may have gone through something much, much more intense than the person next to you doesn't mean the principles are different. The person who needs to exercise in order to maintain health at one level does basically the same things that the professional athlete does to maintain their fitness and health. They may not do it as intensively, but the same principles will apply. So it's a difference in degree and not in kind. And the solution to corruption, whatever that corruption may be, whatever might have happened in a person's life, the solution to that corruption is the Word of God. These are exclusive claims. These are comprehensive claims. I want to look at one more verse. I want you to turn back to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Looking at verse 22, a description of the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. Now, the person who is characterized by these attributes, who has had these attributes made a part of their character as a result of the production of the Holy Spirit in their life, is what we would call, or what the world out there might call, a well-balanced, psychologically equipped, emotionally mature individual. But how did he get that way? He got that way by the application of the Word of God in his life and the production of the Holy Spirit in the midst of that to develop develop him and mature him so that he is able to have these characteristics and these attributes. This is all descriptive of what is meant by the sufficiency of Scripture. It begins with the doctrine of inerrancy. That the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. And that means that is it infallible in every area it addresses. There is no error in the Word of God. It is without error ver- in, in uh, It's called verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal means that it applies to the words themselves, and plenary means that it is inspired in its totality. Every part of it is equally breathed out by God. Corollary to that rule is that the the Scriptures, therefore, are sufficient to address any and every problem, adversity, heartache, abuse, that you or I face in life. It is sufficient for every problem. And third, Scripture and Scripture alone produces spiritual maturity. Everything else is a production of the flesh. Remember what the sin nature looks like. There are two poles to the sin nature. The area of weakness is that area where we're prone to yield to temptation and we commit personal sins. But there are other areas where we're not prone to commit temptation. In fact, we're able to resist personal sins and we perform good deeds. But these good deeds are not good deeds that cut any ice with God. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. God recognizes that in a relative sense... We do good things. Jesus says, you know how to give good gifts to your children. We do good things, but they are not perfect righteousness. God's standard is much higher than ours. God has a perfect, absolute standard of perfect righteousness. And it is only what His righteousness approves that His justice can bless. And He does that through His love and on the basis of His grace, meaning unearned undeserved favor. So man has to live up to this absolute standard of perfect righteousness. Absolute, unconditional, unqualified, uncompromised righteousness. The best man can do is way down here and there's light years between the two. 
So God, in His grace, provided a perfect solution whereby man could meet his standard, not on the basis of his own merit, but on the basis of the merit of Jesus Christ. And that means that God does everything for us. Now, last week, in conclusion of our study, I talked about how this how important this doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is because we live in an era when people think that the way to solve problems and the way to face the difficulties and heartaches and adversities in their lives and to deal with whatever traumas they encountered when they were children or young adults is through psychology. Psychology began a little over 100 years ago with the writings of, of Sigmund Freud and you have people like Freud and Jung and Maslow and Rogers and any number of host of secular psychologists. And I want to address this whole problem of psychology in a little more depth this evening. And first point number one is we're going to ask the question, what is psychology? Psychology derives from two Greek words. It's a compound word from the Greek word sukos. Or suke, meaning soul, and logos, meaning word or study, reasoning about. So it is the science of the soul. The dictionary says that it is the science that deals with mental processes and behavior and the emotional and behavioral characteristics of an individual, a group, or an activity. So as a science, it is scientific only in its methodology because the focus, focal of what it, the focus of what it studies are human beings. And we have volition. Now, there are psychological theories that treat man as being non-volitional, as simply mechanical. But as a science, it is empirical in, in nature. So that means that the empiricist goes out here and observes his, and get, collects his data. So he looks at a variety of different people, and then from these observations, he draws certain conclusions. Now, a lot of people want to think that, well, this is all can be very, very objective. But the problem is, with any sort of empirical study, is that what happens... You start off and you study X number of cases and you draw your conclusion and then all of a sudden you come up here with X plus one observation which totally wipes out all your conclusions. So there's always something else out there that can change and invalidate whatever conclusions you come up with and foul up the whole process. Secondly, the person that is out here, this objective student out here, is not subjective at all. He has a mindset, he has a framework, he has an agenda in many cases, conscious, conscious or unconscious. And so this is, these biases that he brings to it are coloring the interpretation of the data. You see, there's no such thing as a brute fact. Everybody thinks, well, the facts are neutral. Well, there's no such thing really as a brute fact because the interpreter brings his conclusions to it and automatically when he sees it, he's already engaged in the process of interpretation. Let's change our subject from psychology to biology or geology. This is the geologist and he's out here and he's observing a number of different fossils. Well, he automatically, because of his mindset, has categorized those fossils within a scheme of historical geology. And he is already, as soon as he sees them, he says, oh, this is a, this is a clam and it's from about 300 million years ago. And he knows which age and everything else. So he doesn't see it apart from this framework within which he puts it. So he, he looks at the, the, the so-called facts, but the conclusions he draws are completely different from the creationist who says, Oh, this is a this is a clam, and this is just another example of, of the life that was destroyed in the worldwide flood that God brought on the earth in Noah's time. You see, we both look at that same fossil, and we come to conclusions that are 180 degrees apart. 
And this is the same thing in psychology. And the result is that in psychology today, there are over 500 different models of human behavior. There's not, when you talk about psychology, there's not just one psychological system out there. There's over 500 uh, psychological systems out there. And, and they all deal with the subject of human behavior. So they have to have a theory to support, uh, excuse me, they have to have a behavioral theory that, that supports their model. So you've got over 500 different models, each one espousing a different theory of what makes a human being a human being and why they do what they do. So when you read somebody who has been taught majoring in psychology as their PhD in psychology, you have to ask yourself what what model are they coming from? Are they coming from a a, uh, a reality therapy model? Are they coming from a rational cognitive volitional model? Are they coming from a behaviorist model? Are they coming from a, a primal scream model? What model are they using? And that's only a few of them. And I've run into so-called Christian counselors, men who've graduated from Dallas Seminary, who've bought into any of those that I've just mentioned. The weirdest is the primal scream guy. But you never know where, where they're coming from. There are all of these different, different models of behavior that they buy into. Not only are there over 500 different models, there are probably by now over 2,000, but the last time I saw any figures on this, 1,000 different therapies for, attempting, for achieving re, results of change in the subject. Now, which one are you going to buy into? Now, what really muddies the water is you take some guy, and here's his lens here, and he's a Christian. So he's going to take the Bible, and he's going to refract these five, one of these 500 models through his biblical lens and come out with something that he calls uh, Christian psychology. And then he's going to write books. He's going to write books on marriage. He's going to write books on child rearing. He's going to write books on education theory. And you're going to go down to the Christian bookstore and you're going to see this book. You've got a problem in your life. And you're, you're trying to deal with something with your kids, or you're trying to deal with something in your marriage, or you're trying to deal with just some, some uh, traumas that you've gone through in your whole life, your own life, or some adversity. And you go down there, and he's got a title that just hits you right between the eyes, and you pick it up, and on every other sentence, there's a Bible verse in parentheses. And you say, well, this guy's got to be Christian. Look, he went to Dallas Seminary. He went to Trinity Seminary. He's got a degree there, and then he went to UCLA, and he's got a degree in psychology, so this guy must really know how to help me with my problem. And there's some, ver- some terminology here and some verbiage here that I've heard my pastor use. So this guy must be pretty right on. And you're just sliding down the wrong road already. Because what this guy has done is that he has tried to take two different opposing systems of thought, the human viewpoint systems of psychology and the divine viewpoint system of Scripture alone, and he's trying to pull them together. And it's no different. It is no different from the, the legalist who is saying, you are saved by faith plus works, or you grow as a believer by faith plus following my legalistic rules. This is the same kind of thing. You add anything, anything to the Word of God, and you destroy it. Faith plus anything equals nothing. So we have to be very, very careful today because this has made tremendous inroads. We were talking the other night and um, some of this you're not familiar with just because of where you live. You're not exposed to Christian radio. You ought to be so thankful you're not exposed to Christian radio. You can't... 95% of the Christian radio stations are owned by people who don't have a clue as to what ought to be taught. What the Bible, they, they have no clear, accurate perception of what the Bible teaches. And a lot of the people that are on the radio are just confused. They're there for money. They're there to build their own ministry. They're not there because they're concerned about teaching, teaching the Word of God. And there's all sorts of garbage that passes for Christianity that's out there on the Christian airwaves today. 
And not only that, but some of the most popular shows, the shows that, that, that are so relevant to me, the shows that talk about family, the to- shows that talk about raising kids, the shows that talk about a lot of the um, uh, political issues of the day, the shows that, that have a psychologist on there, um, what's his name, James Dobson, is, is very, very popular. And I used to listen to Dobson all the time, and Dobson has a lot of good things to say, but never forget, Dobson's whole orientation is psychological. He doesn't believe in eternal security. He's from a Nazarene background. He doesn't believe in eternal security. Let me tell you something. Anytime somebody doesn't believe in eternal security, they've got real problems. Because if you think there's something you can do to lose your salvation, then somewhere, somewhere in their system of thought, there's something you did to gain that salvation. It's always there. It's always there. And, uh, you know, his theology, you can, anybody who's a thinker will never, you will never divorce their theology from anything else. Everything works together. So, you know, there's a lot of problems there. And, uh, human psychology has, um, has infiltrated Christianity and the evangelical church in horrendous ways today. Now, one thing that's common to every single one of these systems is that they have a biblically defective view of man. What makes man, man? Now, even the Christian systems may start off at some point with a, bib, a somewhat biblical view of man, but because they're going over here and they're borrowing from this other system, this other system it got to that point on the basis of false conclusions. So to some degree, what they're buying may be, might be 90% right. But if I have a glass of water here, and it's pure potable water, and I give that to you and I say, drink that. Well, wait, 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 just a minute. Let me put this drop of cyanide in it. It's not the 99% pure water that's, that's the problem. It's that one drop of cyanide. And see, what's happening is you're going over into another system of thought that's built and erected upon false assumptions. And you're bringing those conclusions over and trying to bring them into the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying that some of these people don't have some good things to say. Mormons have good things to say. Hindus have good things to say. But we're not going to go to the Bhagavad Gita or the Book of Mormon or the Pearl of Great Price in order to get some good information. And yet, that's what, exactly what a lot of Christians are doing. And you'll hear them say, well, I'm going to read this guy because he's going to have some good things to say and I'm smart enough to get rid of the other. Well, you're playing with fire. In the last 40 years, this, this uh, Christian psychology movement has just led hundreds of thousands of believers uh, down the road away from a pure reliance upon the Word of God. I, I mentioned uh, uh, James Dobson a minute ago. A couple of others that are prominent are Meyer and Minrith. And they've got clinics now all over the country. And uh, it's uh, Frank Minrith and Paul Meyer. And I had both of them as instructors at Dallas Seminary when I was a, a student there. And there were several of us who were just constantly um, doing battle with them in class because basically what they had done is taken their system of psychology. And, and what I got out of the pastoral psych course that we had to take was that when anybody comes in and has a problem, it's basically medical. And if you just get them on, on the right medicine, they're going to be okay. Now, I want to add a point here. There are a lot of problems that people, people have that do demand medical treatment. And you need to be on medicine. That's psychiatry. Psychiatry is kind of a mix. It deals with the medical aspects plus psychological theory. But a lot of times, people need to be on Prozac or whatever uh, the medication is, and they need to stay on their medication, but they need to have a plan to eventually get off of it. What happens is, you get into life and you start making a lot of bad decisions and one thing leads to another and I believe that the spiritual always in, or eventually impacts the physical. So what happens is you get down here and you tube it and you're depressed and this is having all kinds of uh, uh, domino effects in terms of the uh, biochemistry of your body and your chemical structure and your body's all screwed up and then one thing leads to another and now you're just tubed up here and you're... you're you're, you're neurotic on the border of being psychotic and you can't concentrate, you can't focus. Well, you've got to have some kind of medicine and take it daily just to stabilize so you can concentrate. 
and get to church and get into Bible class and start listening to doctrine and start letting doctrine have its impact on your life. And now that you've been stabilized from the medication, you can begin to reverse that and begin to grow. And as you begin to grow spiritually and the fruit of the Spirit is manifested in your life, then you need to have a plan to get rid of the crutch because now that medicine's become a crutch and it's no longer needed. It served its purpose because you screwed up your body. You screwed up all the chemical balance in your body and you had to take some pills in order to get squared away again. But we're not talking about medicine. We're talking about psychotherapy. And Meyer and Minrith have written a number of books, very popular ministry, and one of their basic premises is that the reason most people have problems in their life is because they have a low self-worth. They have a low self-esteem. Now, I would bet that if I had had a conversation with any of you in the last week or listened to everything you said, that at one point or another you might have used one of these words. And you don't realize how much the vocabulary of psychology has infiltrated our day-to-day language. So we use words like self-worth and self-esteem, and they bring with them a baggage. But this is not the problem that the Bible says. The Bible says that the problem we have is not that we have a low self-esteem. It's that we have a problem with sin. And because of sin in the universe... That's affected all kinds of different areas in our lives. It's affected all kinds of relationships, uh, marriage relationships, family relationships, parent-child relationships, work relationships. All, all kinds of relationships are affected by sin. It also affects all kinds of other uh, physical systems, uh, weather systems and, and biological systems and everything else. We, we have health problems and all kinds of things like that. All that's um, related to sin. So that sin affects all kinds of things in our lives. We, we grow up with sinners, and because we're associated with sinners, and those sinners, because they are dominated by their sin natures, and they, uh, they go into all sorts of systems of evil, we may be the victims of their evil. But the Bible says there's only one solution, and that solution starts at the cross, by faith alone in Christ alone. And because of that, we can conquer and have a solution to anything in life. You, know, you look at, you do a study of the uh, uh, great heroes of the Old Testament, and you find that a lot of them went through a lot of the problems that people go through today. Just think of all the Israelites that grew up under a system of horrible slavery in Egypt for over 400 years. Sexual abuse, child abuse, physical abuse. Most people in America don't have a clue as to the kind of abuse that they went through under slavery. But does God come along and say, oh, you poor people, you've just been, that's your problem, you've been abused, and you just don't have the right self-image. You don't have the right self-esteem. Man, he just, the problem is sin, and the solution is total dependence upon God, learning God's Word and through the power of the Holy Spirit, whatever the consequences of that might be in your life. If you stick with the Word of God and rely upon Him, then God is the one who heals. God is the one who restores. God is the one who through the Holy Spirit is going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And no matter what has happened, God is more powerful than that situation, that circumstance, that person or that event. And whatever is in the past is in the past. And now the issue is focusing on doctrine and going forward. So Myron Minworth talk about the fact that the biggest problem is that we just don't have... Uh, the right self-esteem. And they talk about how that the, uh, the ten spies, remember the twelve spies in, the, in Numbers who were sent in to spy out the land, um, that uh, they come back, ten of them come back and they give a negative report to Moses. Now, according to Meyer, Minerth and Meyer, the reason is because they have a negative self-image. But the two spies who brought back the good report had a good self-image so they could have a relationship with God. David could feed Goliath because he had a good self-image. Now, I don't know why he would. I mean, his father didn't like him. Left him out with the sheep all the time whenever he wanted to do it. I mean, David, oh, the reason I had an affair with Bathsheba, I just needed to feel loved. I just needed to feel, my father never loved me and I just had this, this psychological, I needed it for my self-esteem. Lord. You, you just don't see, that's not how the Bible addresses people's problems or the cause of them. Saul had a low self-esteem, so Saul just couldn't go fight Goliath. 
This is how the psychologizing of the Bible perverts and it leads people astray. Uh, this big image, this big thing on self-image, I want you to turn to a passage, Matthew 22.39. Matthew 22.39. You'll hear somebody go to this passage eventually. Matthew 22.39. The Pharisees come to address Jesus, and one among them is a lawyer, ask him the question, Teacher, verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's become vogue in the last 30 or 40 years to change the interpretation of that passage. What Jesus is saying is, because you're an egotistical self-centered sinner, and that's the nature of being a sinner. You love yourself. You came out of the womb looking at the mirror saying, aren't you great? Every one of us is like that way. That's what the Bible says. And, and what Jesus is saying, you've got to love other people like you love yourself. Now, some people say, oh, you have a bad self-image. These people don't love themselves. But that is in direct contradiction to a passage in Ephesians. In Ephesians Chapter five, where it's talking, or chapter six, chapter five, where it's talking about marriage, in Ephesians five twenty-eight, the apostle Paul says, "So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies." He's coming back to the same principle: you love yourself first. You don't have to learn to love yourself. For no one, period, over and out, nomic principle for all time. No one ever hated his own flesh. Oh, well, wait a minute, Pastor. I know somebody who, they just have such a low self-image, they started cutting themselves and everything and, and abusing their own body because they just hated themselves so much. Well, why did they hate themselves? Because they love themselves. They, they have disappointed. Something in life has disappointed them. And they wanted to succeed and they failed. They truly loved themselves. If they hated themselves, they'd be glad they were a failure. They look in the mirror and say, I hate you and I'm glad you're fat and ugly. But they don't. They look in the mirror and they're disappointed and they're depressed. They say, I'm fat and I'm ugly. I'm going to kill myself. It's not because they hate themselves. Because they ultimately, they love themselves. And they've, they've fallen so far from their desire and from their standard that they can't live with the disappointment anymore. It's not because they hate themselves. It's because they love themselves. No one, the Scripture says, ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. So the point is that this passage doesn't say you have to learn to love yourself first before you can love others. And that's what modern psychology is saying. That's what Minister and Meyer is saying. That's what a lot of Christian psychologists are saying. If you study that verse in its context, Jesus is not saying you have to love yourselves first. That's a distortion of the passage. Now, another example that's very popular today of this kind of uh, Christian psychologizing is, are, are the books by Gary Smalley and John Trent. And you've seen them on television. You've seen uh, John Tesh and Connie Selica. You've seen um, uh, Kathy Lee Gifford and Frank get on there and advertise and how wonderful these, uh, these videos are and how great it is in their books and how they help their marriage and everything else. But just two examples of how they fall apart. And I went to seminary with John Trent, by the way. Uh, number one is feminization. They buy into well. That's the second point is their fallacy of their left brain right brain concept. But uh, first of all, they start off with uh, they want to feminize the males. Their statement is: if a woman truly expects to have meaningful communication with her husband, she must activate the right side of his brain. See, the assumption is that the left side is your your masculine side, objective, everything else, and the right side is subjective and emotional. That's where women always operate on the right side. Men always operate on the left side. And so if the woman wants, his, wants, uh, wants the guy to understand her, he's got to enter her world of emotions. She must activate the right side of his brain, and if a man truly wants to communicate with his wife, he must enter her world of emotions. What are they really saying? What they're saying is that women have to get their men to think like women in order to communicate with them. 
They don't want a man anymore. They want this guy to be a woman and think like a woman and act like a woman so that they can have a relate. And he says, and the man must learn to think like women do to understand them. So what they want to do is reverse the roles. They don't want the man to be the leader in the home anymore. They want the woman to be the leader in the home. And the man has got to come down and he has got to be a woman in order to carry on these relationships. So right there, they've twisted the roles and you really see throughout their writings this feminization of the male. Second thing, fallacy is the whole underlying concept, which is the left brain, right brain, half wit concept, I call it. First of all, it's been distorted in popular literature. I read an article, I wish I had it in my files, I read one about ten years ago, which, which was by the, the original scientists who came up with this model. And they just were talking about all the popularization had nothing to do with what they had originally discovered, and that this went way beyond anything that they had originally come up with. You see, the brain is much more complicated, we've discovered, and all activities take place in both hemispheres, left brain or right brain. And, and the, the, what they do with um, uh, the, the various CAT scans and everything else, they show that everything takes place all over the brain. So left brain, right brain, brain is a completely uh, false, fabricated concept. And another thing they've discovered is that there's more diversity among males from one man to another in emotional response or objectivity versus subjectivity or anything else and, and, between, and from one woman to another than there is between men and women. So this whole left brain, right brain, left brain for men and right brain, it's just a totally false uh, grid through which to look at things. Dr. Michael Gazaniga in a book titled The Social Brain has a chapter on the left brain, right brain mania in which he says, where does all this conjecture come from? Now this is really, this left brain, right brain stuff is, is through everything. You have it in artist books and you have it in, in school, in educators' handbooks. You have it in all, I mean, it just permeates society. Where does all this conjecture come from? How did some laboratory findings of limited generality get so outrageously misinterpreted? Why were they picked up so hungrily by the press and then embraced? and provided a way to talk about modern brain research and how it applied to everyday experience. Certainly no one was going to argue that people have artistic intuitive skills and logical linguistic skills. Prima facie, there are manifestly different activities of mind. So science is used to prove that one set of skills is in the left brain and another in the right, which in turn proves that mental skills are different and therefore able to be differently, differentially trained. The image of one part of the brain doing one thing and the other part something entirely different was there and that it was a confused concept seemed to make no difference. The runaway fervor for such ideas relates in part to the difficulty in communicating scientific ideas to the general public. And then he concludes, and the oversimplifications and outright erroneous information have also tended to trivialize the complexity of the integrated processes of our minds. John Mazziotta a neurologist at UCLA School of Medicine wrote, Even on the most trivial tasks, our studies showed that everything in the brain was in flux, both sides, the front and back, the top and bottom. It was tremendously complicated. To think that you could reduce this to a simple left-right dichotomy would be misleading and oversimplified. And then Dr. Jerry Levy, a biopsychologist at the University of Chicago, contends the two-brain myth was founded on an erroneous premise. So now if you've got guys that are writing marriage handbooks and all this other stuff predicated on a premise that, that everybody's brain works on this left brain, right brain thing, and men are primarily left brain and women right brain, then what do you think about their whole model of approach to, to life? It's built on, on, on shifting sand. It's no good. And yet they have tremendous visibility and they're praised by people like James Dobson on his radio shows and people read their books and they just talk about how wonderful it is and if you really want to have a good successful marriage then you need to read one of these books. If you want to have a good successful marriage then you stick with Bible doctrine and apply it in your lives and then you will be the kind of person that will make a marriage successful and if your partner is doing the same thing then they will be the kind of person that can make a marriage successful and between the two of you, you can have a successful marriage. It, does, it takes two people to make a marriage successful and only takes one person to screw it up. 
And it's really difficult if one person's positive and the other one's negative. But that doesn't obviate or do away with the commands of Scripture. The basic problem in all of this is that we are engaged in a battle. A battle between human viewpoint, which the Bible calls foolishness, no matter how erudite, no matter how scholarly, no matter how academic, no matter how many studies support their views, if the ultimate premise is human viewpoint, the Bible says it is foolishness. doesn't matter how high their IQ is. doesn't matter how many letters they have after their name, how many doctorates they have, anything like that. What matters is how it lines up with the Word of God, which is divine viewpoint, and that is called wisdom. Wisdom. Absolute truth. Not truth with a small t, but truth with a capital T. So we're living in the midst of a battlefield between human viewpoint thinking, which is the operation of the sin nature, and divine viewpoint thinking, which comes under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in teaching us the Word of God. So in order to get into this, and an introduction into James 1.5, we need to look at the doctrine of wisdom. we get into this, I want you to turn in your Bibles to James 1.5 and let's look at the coming passage. James 1.5. With a little bit of review, and John, I'm beginning to get warm. Would you turn the fan on, please? Thanks. James 1. Back up to verse 2 so we get the context. We must understand what the author is saying. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into any number of adversities. Because you know that the testing of the doctrine in your soul produces long-term endurance, consistency, persistency in the spiritual life. And let that persistent long-term endurance have its or bring about its completion, completed result, that you may be complete and whole. How are you complete and whole? We're corrupted. We're fragmented. We've been beat up on and we've been kicked around by life and by Satan's world and by people and everything else. How do you become whole and complete through the Word of God, through this process, applying the Word of God in the midst of these trials, not by going, sitting somewhere, talking about it with a therapist, but by listening to the Word of God, taking it in, applying it in your life. And let endurance have its result, its completing result, that you may be complete and whole, lacking in nothing. Lacking nothing. I don't care what you might have missed out on, in the spiritual life, you're going to lack nothing. But, contrast, if first class condition, if and, I'm go- and we're going to assume that it's true, in the Bible there are different ways to express a conditional clause. Uh, you know, a conditional clause is expressed by an if. And in English, you can only do it one way. But in Greek, according to the Greek syntax and the, um, the tenses or the, or the uh, uh, moods of the verb, various different things, it can be expressed one of four different ways. First is if, and we're going to assume that it's true. Assume that this is a true statement. It may be true, but sometimes it's assumed to be true for the sake of argument. If, second class condition, if, and we're going to assume that it's false. Third class condition, if, and we don't know, it could go one of two ways. If, maybe yes, and maybe no. And then a fourth class condition is if, and I wish it were true, but it's not. So you have to look at the Greek and determine what the author is trying to communicate. And he's saying, if and it's true, then any of you lack wisdom. Why? Because we all lack a certain amount of wisdom. I don't care how mature you are, how long you've been studying God's Word, how, how long you've been a mature believer, you're always going to lack certain wisdom from Scripture. If any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom for what? This is wisdom for handling the trial, the test. If you lack what you need to handle the test, we're going to get into the solution. But first we have to understand what we're lacking. 
lacking wisdom. So point number one under the doctrine of wisdom is a definition. Definition. The biblical concept derives from the Hebrew word chokhmah. C-H-O-K-M-A-H. And it is translated skill, wisdom. We see it in the Old Testament. This is point number two, the Old Testament use of the word. In Exodus chapter 35, 35. He, that is God, has filled them, that is the, those who worked on the tab, constructing the tabernacle, he has filled them with skill. And that's our word, chokhmah. Skill. He has filled them with skill. So you see it has a certain practical aspect to it. A certain practical aspect. In fact, we could define it as the skillful application of theory and knowledge to the practical issues of life. Now, we all know people who can handle a theory and a, and a book, book instruction real well but they don't know how to take book instruction and apply it to whatever it is, whether you're talking about auto mechanics or whether you're talking about chemistry. Uh, How many of us have done real well in the chemistry lab after we've been in the chemistry classroom? We're not even sure what we heard when we take it into the chemistry lab. Um, But these are people who are able to take the theory and knowledge and skillfully apply that to the practical issues of life. It's very different from the Greek concept of Sophia. S-O-P-H-I-A. Which the Greek concept of wisdom is what we think of. Abstract knowledge. But for the Hebrews, it's a very concrete concept. It's practical knowledge that creates something beautiful. So when he's talking about the jewelers and the goldsmiths and the silversmiths, and the artisans who are constructing everything, the weavers, um, all of those involved, the carpenters, all those involved in constructing the the, uh, tabernacle, says he filled them with chokhmah to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer, of an embroiderer in blue and in purple and in scarlet material and in fine linen and of a weaver as performs every work and makers of designs. So you think about the great artisans that you've heard about. Think about great jewelers like Harry Winston. and We were at the Smithsonian a few weeks ago and we saw the Hope Diamond and some of the other jewels that, that he had created the settings for and some of the jewels that he cre- created for the uh, Duchess of Windsor. And just incredible, phenomenal workmanship. And yet the, these men had it under the filling of the Holy Spirit, the temporary endowment of the Holy Spirit. And what they created was every bit as as beautiful and wonderful. Exodus 36.1 talks about the two key men, Bezalel and Aholiab. Now Bezalel and Aholiab and every skillful, there's our word again, every skillful person in whom the Lord has put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work in the construction of the sanctuary shall perform in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every skillful person in whom the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come to the work to perform it. So in the Old Testament, it has this idea of very practical usage of knowledge. It's not just academic knowledge, it is the practical use. So that brings us to the fact that this is comparable to the New Testament concept of epignosis. E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S. Now, where do we get epinosis? Well, first of all, we have a pastor teacher, and he teaches us. He gives the instruction of the Word of God. And then we're under the filling of the Holy Spirit because we've confessed our sins. And God the Holy Spirit is our teacher. He's the instructor and guide for every single believer to help them understand the Word of God. So the pastor teacher teaches the Word of God and the Spirit of God helps us to understand it and he makes it clear. He's the one who teaches us. So the issue isn't your education. The issue isn't your IQ. The issue is no human factor. God the Holy Spirit gives you equal opportunity to learn the Word of God. 
I have met people who have sat under the teaching of the Word of God week after day after day, week after week, year after year, and they didn't have anything more than an eighth grade education, and they stuck with it, and it's incredible what they understood and what they knew. Because in the spiritual realm, the issue is not physical, biological, or genetic factors. In the spiritual realm, the issues are spiritual factors, and God the Holy Spirit gives every single believer equal opportunity to study and learn the Word of God. God the Holy Spirit transfers it down into our mind, what the Bible calls the nous in the Greek, N-O-U-S, what I call the left, this is as we, in the diagram, the left lobe of the mind of the soul, not the left lobe of the soul, not the physical brain, but the mentality of the soul. Now we understand it academically. This is where it's just academic knowledge. The Bible calls it gnosis. We have a chance then to believe it, to accept it as true, and God the Holy Spirit then transfers it over into our heart. The Bible calls it the cardia. It's not emotional when it says they felt something in their heart Talking about their mind over and over again, that's demonstrable. As a man thinketh in his soul, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Cardia. This is K-A-R-D-I-A. It's not the physical organ. It's, uh, it's the innermost part of his thinking. And this is where Bible doctrine is stored and where it circulates in your thinking processes. This is where it becomes a part of your your everyday thought life, as you meditate on it and contemplate on it, God the Holy Spirit circulates it in your mind. And that is where it is epinosis and wisdom. And it is from there that God the Holy Spirit applies it. And it has the idea of skill. A skill is not something that is developed overnight. It takes time. And there are three major spiritual skills. The first is um, confession. This is a skill. You have to learn it. You have to get to a point where you keep short accounts with God every time you sin. The second is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Learning to be filled with the Holy Spirit and follow the leadership, walking by means of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.17. And third, you have the ten stress busters. The only way you learn how to apply those over and over again is to learn them and use them and use them and use them and use them. And that develops a skill. And as you do that, As you develop these skills, the result is skillful living. You are producing, God the Holy Spirit is producing something of beauty and value and attractiveness in your life. He is making you into the image of Jesus Christ so the character of Christ is displayed in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is the product of this. As you go through this process, the Holy Spirit is working and His production is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of these things are the production of the Holy Spirit. He, that's up to Him to produce that, not you. Your job is confession of sin, make sure you're filled with the Holy Spirit, constantly develop the use of the problem-solving devices, learn doctrine, apply, apply, and then God the Holy Spirit takes care of the process of production and spiritual growth. So wisdom is synonymous with epinosis, the knowledge of doctrine that is in the soul. Point number three. Wisdom thus begins with making doctrine the highest priority in your life. This is what the Bible means by the fear or respect of the Lord. Fear means to honor, to revere, to value highly because the consequences of failing to do so are so calamitous. When the Bible says to fear the Lord, the idea of fear there is to value something so highly because you know that the consequences of failure to do so are disastrous. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Powerful statement. If you're going to have wisdom in your soul over here, if you're going to have chokmah in your soul then it starts up here with authority orientation to the Word of God, studying the Word of God, learning the Word of God, because you know that nothing matters more than knowing what God's plan is for your life. And you fear the Lord, 
and you know that the consequences of failure are disastrous. Point number four. Wisdom has its source in God alone. And it is set in the Bible against the thinking of all the various human viewpoint systems. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom, from His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And we're going to stop there because we need to look at a very important passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in order to understand the importance of divine viewpoint wisdom. And so we'll start there next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word that it is absolutely absolute truth. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in His prayer before He went to the cross. He said, pray that You would set us apart in truth, that Your Word is truth. And that if we would know the truth, it's the truth, Bible doctrine, that would set us free. Whatever problems we face in life, whatever our heartaches, whatever our disappointments, whatever the challenges, whatever the adversities, whatever might have happened to us as children or in our teenage years or as adults, no matter how horrendous, no matter how horrible, the issue is that we can overcome that simply through learning Bible doctrine, applying it into our lives, that you are the one who heals us, that as we go through this process of learning and applying Bible doctrine, then you are the one who restores our soul, the psalmist says. You restore our soul. You lift us up. And you are the one who solves all of our problems. Lord, far be it from us to think that we ever accomplish the solution of our problems on the basis of our own efforts or energies or human viewpoint systems. Because then we would think that our happiness is a result of our own efforts. And we know that true happiness comes only from you and only from following your game plan. So, Father, now as we have studied these things, we pray that we would receive them in faith, make them a part of our, of our thinking, that the Holy Spirit would restore these things to our mind and remind us of them in the week to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.